Welcome to Veterans in Academics. This podcast highlights people and topics where the veteran experience and academia overlap. Join your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, in this groundbreaking content. Each week, we explore new stories, topics for you. I welcome everyone to Veterans and Academics. I'm your host, Luke McLeese, and I'm very uh, excited today for our guest, Dr. Khadija Boyd. And let me tell you some about Dr. Boyd. Dr. Boyd was born in New York, and she served on active duty from July of 2000 to September 2019. She served as a unit supply specialist, and she has two deploys to Afghanistan, retired as a staff sergeant, and has remained in the Fort Lee area. She has earned a PhD in organizational leadership from North Central University, and she has started a woman-owned, service-disabled veteran business, Full Spectrum Leadership. Full Spectrum Leadership specializes in training, education, coaching, and they are dedicated to providing support services to government and commercial clients. Dr. Boyd, welcome. Thank you for having me, Luke. I appreciate it very much. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm so excited to to get to know you more and have our listeners get to know you. So since that's our main goal today, why don't you go ahead and start by telling us some of your background? Um, like you previously stated, I'm from New York. Uh, I'm 38 years old. I joined the Army uh, fresh out of high school. Had no intentions on joining the Army. Uh, the recruiter was coming around for my older brother, and, you know, I just became interested in that. Uh, so I went that way, even though I did have scholarship opportunities uh, to go to Syracuse University, uh, Hamilton College uh, for swimming because I was a swimmer. I uh, was very athletic during my high school year. Um, but I, I chose otherwise. Other than that, you know, I'm married. Uh, my husband is currently uh, at Camp Pendleton uh, going through uh, the Devil Doc training, the FM, FMF training. He's right. a hospital corpsman, and you know, the Marines don't have corpsmen, so they reach to the Navy for that. I don't have any kids, but I do have a dog. I have a pit, a pit bull named Akasha, so it's just me, my husband, and her, our little family. And other than that, like, other than you said, I'm just working on my business and trying to do better things post-military. Awesome. Awesome. That's great. That's great. Okay, so let's get started with this. We, we have two questions that we always ask our all of our guests and so someone like yourself uh, like myself and like all of our other guests we're all veterans and we've all worked at some capacity in academics so let me ask you uh, what is something right now that veterans that you see that veterans are doing well in academics from what i see i feel that veterans are uniquely positioned for academic success uh in multiple groups that i am in on facebook uh, the phd groups and the veteran to veteran groups you see a lot more veterans with higher levels of education uh before you know when i first uh, joined it was you know they'd stop at the associates or the bachelors but since uh, civilian um civilian businesses are seeking higher levels of education you'll see veterans reaching out more for those master's degrees for those doctorate degrees and uh, trades outside of their military occupational specialty to make themselves more of an asset. And you see it, I see it more frequently than not, uh, which even when I was graduating with my master's and we had the in-person graduation in 2017, you see all the blue, the red, white, and blue cords 
uh, in the formation out in the audience and, you know, University of Phoenix, I think we graduated 500 people that day and they asked all the veterans to stand. And I would say at least half of the group had at least served, even if they weren't a retiree, they had at least served some time in the armed forces. So I think that veterans are dedicating more of themselves into that uh, military civilian transition to better themselves, to make themselves more of an asset post-military now than before. I would say before it was like, let me make it to retirement so I can get my retirement check and then I can be okay with that. Right. But now it obviously is the cost of living has gone up and, you know, differences in uh, society. You just can't, you can't make it up that alone and it, unless you obviously planned all the way down to the last dollar, you know, so you have to make yourself available to at least work if you had to. And I think that a lot of veterans are doing that and they're doing a better job of making themselves available to the civilian workforce, excuse me, post-military. Yeah, I'm glad you're saying that because I could not agree more. I was I was just speaking to a group the other day and they asked me what I see with veterans coming out and, and taking part of higher education. And, you know, I talked about exactly what you were talking about. The motivation level seems a lot higher. Uh, people are planning for the next stage of their life way before, uh, you know, we even see some younger enlisted people being entrepreneurs while they're an E2, E3 level, you know, and it's just so different because I think for a lot of us, it was, okay, I'm going to do the military. Then you get out and then you're like, all right, I'm going to plan for the next step. So I'm glad you're highlighting that. And I also want to say that a lot, I feel like a lot of veterans are dispelling stereotypes as well, because I think there's a stigma that comes along with people who join the military is that, oh, the only reason why you join the military is because you couldn't go to college. But like I stated earlier, I had multiple scholarship opportunities to do so, right. but it was just not the path that I wanted to take at that time. I, because right. the fear of if I don't want to swim anymore, my scholarship is gone. But at the same time, I can join the military, I can join the army, be a soldier, work. And the, you know, my recruiter was very upfront with me. So you can gain this experience and you can get your degree while you're in. And that's what I did. I did everything that my recruiter told me to do. So it's, I like the dispelling of the stereotypes that in order to be in the military, you're dumb. Like I, so I love to see veterans stand up with their professional degrees and say, yes, I have this and with it, I have my age, my experience, work ethic, discipline, and my military training, which makes me stand out even more uh, to the civilian workforce and into academia. Absolutely. Absolutely. I could not agree more. That's, that's excellent. So, so right off the bat, you're highlighting some great positives. Let me ask you, what is one of the things that you see veterans and academic could do better? Uh, the adjustment from the military life to the campus life, the the transition from soldier to scholar. And I'll, I'll get into it a little bit later, but I feel like that I also had a little difficulty transitioning from soldier to scholar with not being able to get things when I want them. Because you know, being in the military, when I go into this office, hey, I need X, Y, and Z, and I need it by this time. I expected then, and I really wasn't fully prepared for that civilian side of, well, it's like, well, we'll get to it, or, right. you know, maybe next week. And, you know, it can cause a lot of frustrations, especially if you're getting out with, and uh, like myself, I have anxiety, I have PTSD post-military. So it was kind of difficult for me to make that transition from uh, soldier to scholar, adjusting to the cultural norm of academia, uh, being on campus. It's not like walking around a military installation where 
where it's just like, okay, we're part of this rigid hierarchical structure. I'm a staff sergeant, sergeant first class, whatever the case may be. So I can walk around with my chest up and demand a certain level of respect. You essentially can't do that on campus because it's like, we're all here trying to do the same thing. Like you're not special in that capacity anymore. Like, and I feel like some people have difficulties letting that part of their, their lives go, even though it's understandable because you spent so much time engulfed in it, right. you know? So, but I think that that transition, uh, uh, veterans can deal, uh, you know, handle it a little better. Um, the shift in identity, if you should say it that way. Man, I could not agree more. Mm-hmm. I could not agree more. And sometimes, it, you know, it's like the funny thing, not only is it a shift to civilian life, like you talked about, but it's a, a shift to campus. And when you're in the military, civilian life definitely runs slow. But when you go to a campus, campuses run slower than regular civilian life. So it's, you get hit with a double. Yeah, precisely. Precisely. Well, Khadija, I think it was really interesting earlier when you mentioned uh, that, you know, your original intentions were, were not to join the military, but the recruiter was actually coming to talk to your brother and, and you know, you got interested can you talk to us some about like your motivation and desire to join the military and then like what some of your time in the military was like? Of course. Um, so like I said, my the recruiter was coming to see my older brother, Ahmed, and his name was Sergeant First Class Johnson. And he was just the most delightful person I probably met in my life. He was just so motivated, just so happy to be there. And he his energy made you want to be around him. So when he would come to the house, he would always speak to everyone there, like my parents and my other siblings and he was just a generally a nice man my brother did not qualify my brother just couldn't get the scores like and, and I hate to put his business out there on this podcast like this but he just couldn't he couldn't get the scores and okay. so one day I was like well I'll take the ASVAB I'll take it and I just wind up taking it and I wind up scoring a 60 on the ASVAB GT scores a 120 and they were like well you can do anything that you want to do and I was like and as a 16 year old girl taking the ASVAB right. not really okay. understanding the commitment of the army forces and what the army was going to be asking of me. I guess that initial fear had set in and I asked him, I was like, well, what is the easiest thing that I could do? I love it. Because I know that I'm not going to do 20 years. (laughs) I'm just going to go in here for these four years and get what I need to get and get out. So he wind up offering me, you know, 92 Yankee Unisupply Specialist, which is not an easy job. He totally scammed me, <laughs> he totally scammed me. But it was, it was very rewarding at the end because of the transferable skills that I did get post-military as well. But my experience in the military was definitely life-changing and put me in a position to really see the world and people than the the bubble of New York that I lived in. And I say that to say this, I I went to a high school that was very diverse. I went to school with people from Romania, from the Ukraine, China, you know, it's New York. Uh, And then to join the military and see my first stint of racism and and sexism and discrimination and not knowing then what microaggressions were, not really understanding misogyny and not really dealing with that ever in my life until I joined the army and it was it was disheartening so much because obviously they brief you with this oh this army of one uncle sam we want you we're a team effort so it hurt at first you know but even before i even knew all of that i joined because of the fifty thousand dollar college fund that they were offering at the time right okay it the money 
<laughs> the money I just couldn't say no to because I was like 50 grand for college and I can go to school while I'm on active duty and I can save that for later. When I even, I even wound up taking advantage of my TA and then using some of the 50,000 while I was on active duty in the top up program. And that's how I was able to get my master's while I was on active duty. But during my time, I, I came across some great leaders that I still talk to this day. Some of these people have had major impacts on my life and the woman that I am today that have pushed me to the level of education that I am now. They saw more in me than I probably ever seen in myself. I never expected to make it to a PhD, never. Uh, but it's just like, well, you worked for the money. Why not just go ahead and do it? And I'm like, well, yeah, you're right. Uh, right. But I didn't, I, I feel like my military experience overall was a lot smoother than most. Like I said, I was not married at the time. I did not have any children. I didn't have any outside factors influencing what I had to do professionally. So I was there 100% all of the time outside of, you know, some of the obviously mental health days that most of us have to take for downtime. But I was there and I feel like it was because I chose to focus so much on that, that my military experience was a lot easier than most. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> awesome. And so now during this time and, and, and with your uh, position as a supply specialist, you did a couple deployments. Can you talk to us a little bit about those deployments that you did? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I deployed from Italy, uh, Naples, Italy. I was stationed at the uh, Naval Support Site, uh, joint uh, NATO, so we were joint operations. Deployed there in support of Operation Enduring Freedom, uh, direct support to General Petraeus's communication team. So when we were there, we set up for the Afghanistan presidential elections. That was our main mission. We were in Kabul, and I'm not saying that, uh, <laughs> you know, it was the easiest, but it was a four-star headquarters base, you know, with General Petraeus there. So it was a lot more than the times that we had to travel to Kandahar and dealing with everything that was going on in Kandahar and the other bases that we had to go uh, provide support to. I can say that I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> I wouldn't do it again, but I appreciate the experience because I think it made me stronger and more appreciative to everything that I have and everything that is going to come to me in the future. The lifelong friendships, again, the, the camaraderie, you can't, you can't get it any place else other than, for lack of better words, a kind of life or death experience where you don't know if you're coming home uh, or, or if your, your battle buddies, your left, your right is going to make it home as well. So it's just like those bonds that are built there is something that you cannot, something you really can't explain unless you're a veteran yourself and have done it. But I, I I feel like it's made me a stronger woman, a stronger person overall. I volunteered to stay the second time. I, I was only there for eight months and I was like, well, I'll stay for the 12. And, you know, they were like, no, your unit needs you to, to come home. Cause I, I went as an individual all in tea. Cause you know, like I said, it was joint operations. So they're right. like, you know, your unit needs you to come back. <laughs> but I would have stayed, I would have stayed. Uh, not saying that I enjoyed my time there, but I liked the mission and what we were doing there. I can't say that we're really necessarily helping the people that's you know, way above my pay grade, but getting the presidential elections, essentially setting up democracy in that country was something that I was very proud of. Amazing. So, so, so this is really some deep experiences and, and, you know, you had 19 years in the military and, and, you know, you, you've accomplished a lot. And, you know, one of the things you alluded to earlier when you were talking about the going on campus and things being a little slower, let's talk about that because, you know, you've, you've come with all these deep experiences and, and world type of 
like you said, you wanted to, to travel and, and wanted to get a little more out of just the norm. That's what happened. And then all of a sudden you're, you're back, you know, in civilian life. What, what was kind of navigating academics uh, once you were just a civilian and not having to do military stuff and doing education at the same time? I felt very isolated. I, I'm not going to lie. And this is a conversation that I've had with some of my other friends who have, you know, doctorates. Dr. Frederick Ingram, we talk quite frequently. I felt very isolated, but this is the program that I chose. So when I chose my PhD, I went with North Central University because they have no residencies. It is a strictly doctoral led online program. And at first it was great. Okay. It was great. I'm like, oh, I don't have to worry about anybody else, which was a plus for me because spending 19 years worrying about your soldiers, worrying about everybody else. I was like, this is great for me. I can focus on me. Then I realized that I had nobody to talk to because it's one-on-one. -on -one. It's just your professor and you. There's no discussion boards. There, Like I said, there are no residencies. Okay. And although they do offer a community forum, I still don't know who I'm talking to. Right. You know, it's really hard to build a connection with somebody who's in a different program going a different pace than you. So I, I essentially felt very isolated. I So I started following a lot of groups on Facebook to try to feel connected. But again, it's not the same as having a cohort. It, it's just, um, but I set out to accomplish my goals. And so I just focused on that. So when I went to school and opposed to working and going to school at the same time, I decided that I was just going to dedicate my self to my program because I wanted to finish on time. They gave me a three-year timeline. They were like, but you have up to 10, but it can be done in three. And I was like, I'm going to do it in three. Right. Okay. I, I essentially finished in two years and eight months. <laughs> Wow. So, which I was, I was very, very happy about that, that I was so impetus in completing the program, but it was still very isolating because I didn't have, you know, social groups and study groups and things like that to deal with, but I did, I did meet my goals. That's amazing. That's awesome. And you know, that's so far, that is a theme throughout all of these interviews uh, for veterans and academics. Everyone I've talked to at some point in their education has been on hyperdrive, you know? And I think that really goes to show that sometimes in the, in the civilian culture, it's kind of like, all right, we're, you know, we'll, we'll go to school and we might change our major a couple times and we'll figure it out. But when you're been enculturated into the military aspect and then come out, you're like, okay, well, we have a goal and we've got to accomplish this goal. And so education becomes, you know, the goal. Absolutely. And, that's amazing. So really, really interesting. So how would you how would you feel when you were doing your your doctoral work or the work that you do now that your experience in the military and your veteran experience has really informed what you do academically now or what you do with your business after completing your dissertation? So I, I chose to get my PhD in organizational leadership because I felt that it went hand in hand with everything that I had been doing for the past 19 years. Absolutely. Um, and, and for anybody who's confused why I say 19 years and why to do 20, I was uh, medically discharged. I wound up sustaining a few injuries that, uh, you know, prohibited me from continuing on to 20 years, which is no problem for me. I was essentially ready to go anyway. But I went to, I went the organizational leadership route because 
I was like, well, I have all this experience in leadership and then I can just add this to it. But then getting into the the peer reviewed and the academic foundations of leadership is totally different from military leadership and army leadership. The foundations are essentially the same, but when you're looking at scientific evidence of what really works, the uh, the military culture is way in left field talking about touchdown because, you know, mission accomplishment is the biggest part of it. So, yeah, we want to be great leaders and we want to do right by everybody and we want everybody to be happy. And But essentially, that's never going to be the case. So it influenced my military experience, influenced my work, especially my dissertation when I started talking about emotional intelligence. Uh, my dissertation was a, a, quantitative, a qualitative, uh, excuse me, a qualitative analysis of emotional intelligence among leaders oh, at the yeah. Army Logistics University right here on Fort Lee. And I I came to that topic due to a lot of reading that I had did based on emotional intelligence being deficient in military leaders. And that is the reason why there are so many issues with drugs and alcohol, domestic violence, uh, inappropriate emotional responses, using emotions inappropriately to gain a reaction for motivation and how actually it's very toxic in the end. And it just made so many wheels start turning in my mind and how many times I was like, you know, I'm going to be mad. at. I'm going to pretend to be mad at these soldiers to get them to do what I want them to do. Not realizing now, after reading the literature, that that's very damaging because it could have went the exact opposite of my intention. So it, I feel like with everything that I did, every step that I made, everything that I, every leader that I came into contact with was a tool that I could use in my writing and in my research. But it's always viewed from different levels because certain things that are accepted in the military are definitely not accepted in academia and they are definitely not accepted in the civilian world. Just the way that we talk to one another, uh, you know, that you know, the way that we talk to one another sometimes, <laughs> which would be considered bullying <laughs> in, in, in every other aspect. But it, it really did guide my research and my way of thinking. And I I think that academically and scientifically, I'm a better person now. I'm a better leader because of it, because now I have multiple viewpoints on uh, what I can judge leadership on. I, I spent most of my military career using implicit leadership theory and just emulating the things that I seen, assuming that it was correct. Because, you know, in the hierarchical structure, that's what they tell you to do. Find somebody that you admire and be like them. But not really knowing that this person can be the worst leader on the face of the earth <laughs> and you're just emulating them and replicating them. And I know now how to identify the characteristics in myself and what I want to be and the better leader that I am, you know, aspiring to be, you know, and that's why I started uh, my business, you know, full spectrum leadership. It covers every aspect of leadership. It's much more than providing that motivation to get others to follow. Um, it's about creating a conducive working environment with better interpersonal relationships. It's about conflict management, not even resolution, because everybody's not going to get along. You know, in, in, this, in the world that we are living in, everybody is not going to get along. So it's about managing that conflict and coming up with some type of, you know, level ground where we can all just work together and complete the mission. Um, but all of that I carried over with me into my program and it was just easy. It came easy to write about leadership, the good and the bad, it, it, because I had that experience with me and th those lived experiences, I should say, with me. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. And, you know, that's another thing that I'm finding throughout everyone. It's much of our own lives are informing 
the research that we have done or that we're doing now and uh, it all extremely worthwhile and beneficial to people in our shoes, but also the civilian culture at large. It's just like a fresh perspective that I think we're able to bring that others may not be able to bring. Oh, absolutely. So let me ask you something. So you obviously you had a NCO staff NCO billet in the military. You have a PhD in organizational leadership that translates to your business full spectrum leadership. And you, you kind of touched on some of the things that you do with full spectrum. So tell me a little bit, if I was a client what might a client expect from Full Spectrum? I would assume that they would expect a learning experience to where they can increase their own organizational capacity. Because uh, I can provide the education. I can provide the tools. Are you going to comprehend? Because it takes much more than just listening and having those tools. I need you to comprehend them. And if you want to increase your capacity and as far as what your people are doing, because everything starts with your people. And if you're not taking care of everyone, starting at the bottom, the strongest part of a pyramid is the base. If you're not taking care of everyone, if you're overlooking them and you're treating them badly because they're not uh, a GS or a 13, 14, or if they're not a CEO or executive leadership position, then you are essentially not going to be successful. So what my purpose is to show them that everything starts at the bottom and works its way up. And, you know, we've, we've always done that in the military. Right. Because the worker bees, for lack of better words, they're going to be the ones who are doing 80% of the work. If you're not taking care of them and giving them what they need as far as their basic needs, you know, emotional support, which I, I, I'm really big on the emotional support. And to go to touch back on my own military career, I felt like that it just wasn't there, uh, especially being a woman. It was just like, are you going to cry? Sarnboid, or are you going to get it done? And yeah, that worked for me, you know, because I didn't want to be the weak woman in uniform. I was like, I can do just as much, if not better than these other people around me. So I want to touch, I really want to focus on the emotional aspect when I'm talking to people, when they're coming to me with their issues that they're having at their, uh, with their organization, because more than likely it's always a misunderstanding with communication. It's always a misunderstanding with communication from what I, what I have seen so far, even in the, the literature that I've reviewed, the research, it's always a break in communication why there is some type of disconnect at an organization. In addition to, you know, toxicity that people carry over, they feel like being a bully is the only way to lead when that's absolutely not the case. I'm not saying you have to be friends with anybody that you work with. But at the same time, you know, you have to be able to have some type of interpersonal relationship with them to where the communication goes both ways, where, and that involves active listening, having uh, appropriate emotional responses, because I can say for the last six years of my career that I had to fake empathy. I think, I feel like at toward the end, I had heard every story, every excuse and I think a part of me was just tired of hearing it, but you can't be that way if you want to be a leader. So even if you're if you're faking some emotions at the operational level, it's you know it's something that you have to do to be successful. That's great. And so, Dr. Boyd, can you tell us any of your current projects that you're working on right now, or anything future that you've got going? Yes, currently I am writing two articles for the Vermont Connection. They publish annually. So this is the, the Vermont Connection, volume 42. This year's theme is anti-blackness in higher education. So I submitted two drafts and they both were selected. I was very surprised because this awesome. was 
this will be my first publication and the fact that I'm getting two articles published, I was very excited. Was very ah, congratulations. Thank you very much, sir. Um, one of the uh, topics that I chose to write about was West Point. And, and if you've been following the news lately, there was 2019, about 50 West Point graduates came forward and were discussing anti-Blackness that were issues that they were dealing with at the institution. And right. just more recently, VMI, their superintendent stepped down uh, in October of uh, this year for the same issues, just allowing, uh, you know, white supremacy culture to engulf the campus. Uh, they had a they had a, a professor that was giving history lessons about her father who was in the in the KKK and that they were allowing this to happen. So that, that was the thing that we're writing about and how it can be difficult for for black people not only to be in academia, but to trade their service, to trade their time in service for that education. So not only are you a student, you're going to be a military officer after this. So how does that essentially play out? So that was one of the articles. And the other one was essentially having a double consciousness when attending institutions. Now that could play out in multiple ways for people who, you know, we all have our customer service voice. <laughs> right. So it's just like how damaging that can be to an individual when they don't even know who they are essentially because they have to be somebody when they're at work or at school and then they can be themselves when they're at home and how that how more often than not it affects black people and other people of color because the standard of admittance for most of these universities at one point was whiteness right. and especially if you're attending a PWI where the population of Black people or pe other people of color is less than 12%, how you fit in and make yourself fit in so you're not hyper-visible on campus. To, so you're not subjected to any type of racial attack or animosity, especially with everything that's going on in the world right now. But yeah, those are the two top, those are the two pieces I have coming out. And I submitted a couple other drafts, one still, you know, the Journal of Veteran Studies. I'm still waiting to hear back on that. <laughs> but yeah, other than that, I have a few contracts that I submitted to the government. So let's see if I can get some work in that aspect of professional management and development training. Everybody's kind of low on funds now with everything going on. So we'll see how that turns out. Wow. Well, this is great. This is great. And you know, it sounds like your work, of course, is well needed, but it, your experience, your education, the timeliness of these things that you've submitted, all are perfect, all are perfect. So I, I'm very happy that you are on the show today. And what I'm going to tell listeners, everyone who's listening, when you see that this episode is available, when links are available to Khadija's work, we are going to include links so you can follow her work and stay up to date on everything that she's just mentioned and talked about. Dr. Boyd, thank you so much for being on the program today. It was an honor to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. Wonderful. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Veterans and Academics. We thank all of you for listening. Veterans in Academics is an all-veteran production of Freedom and Prosperity Think Tank. Content creation is brought to you by Dr. Luke McCleese and Dr. Michael Bevers. Web development is by Osvaldo Vargas.